you've got a government who the only policy they have is an environmental policy. They haven't got a food policy. And that is very, very frustrating. They don't really want to talk about food production or being a food producer. They just want to talk about the environment. And everything they've got coming out currently is all about the environment. Farmers in the UK are going through substantial change following the country's exit from the EU. The question of direct payments is less of a feature in UK farms, and the industry is facing more open market competition with increased environmental requirements. Perhaps the UK is moving in a similar direction as the EU, with the goal of cheap food coupled with a sustainable agricultural industry. However, the rubber hits the road at a farm gate level, as farmers must make a living first and then comply with national policies along the way. You're listening to the latest episode of The Tilly Change with me, Michael Hennessy. We'd really appreciate it if you could listen, follow, and give us a review on Apple or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. From a distance, all UK arable farms look big in comparison to Irish farms. However, the farms are often run by a handful of people who are well-equipped to get over the work. Andy Mann, a Dubliner, is one of these farmers who manages a very large block of land in the southeast of England. Andy, you're very welcome to the Tillage Edge podcast. It's been a while since we spoke last, and there's certainly been lots of ups and downs, especially in the grain market. How are you faring on that front in terms of selling grain? Funny enough, we're moving quite a lot this week. So I I, uh, held on and held on. And then November time, beginning of November last year, um, a lot of us, some of our, probably half of us are running contracts. And that that just moves on on a price basis anyway. But then the half our wheat's probably probably talking about 1,800, 2,000 tonnes that just um, I sell as the season goes sort of thing. We can store all our grain here on farm. So um, beginning of November, the price started to fall and I sort of got cold feet, I suppose, and I sold quite a a chunk then, um, probably 600 tonnes. And then the the market just kept dropping away and dropping away. And I came back, I met with the owners here and and we just chose to to sell everything basically and the markets just kept dropping away which is probably what you you know in hindsight yeah. it looked you know we perhaps we should have started selling a bit sooner but I, I really didn't see the market dropping away but i think livestock producers the, the pig industry is on its knees in this country the poultry guys are on their knees and and they're big consumers of wheat and they're not buying any feed obviously and, and trying to limit it because it's the price so it's so high and and they're going out of business a lot of them they're not they're just not restocking after so i think um Although everything was pointing to an upward market, it's it's gone very flat now at the moment. It has picked up again recently, but we we hit just below two hundred, and it's just hovering above two hundred now. But we we've sold reasonably well. I'm pretty happy. Like we've got good profit locked in. So yeah, great. Yeah, and it's looking it's look, it's looking certainly it, it it seems to be going down every other day. And the, the outlook for next harvest, a lot of things have got to change for it to come back in and um, and make up for the price of fertilizer, which didn't come down quick enough either. Exactly that. Exactly that. I mean, you know, we're putting on fertilizer that we've bought at seven, eight hundred quid a ton, and um, you know, the you know, if wheat sort of sat sort of two fifty to three hundred pounds a ton, it's, it's you know a bit less uh, you know painful. But when wheat sat around two hundred, and you've just you know we're putting on fertilizer that we spent that amount of money on, it is you know it's a bit more painful, and of course all the other inputs, all the sprays and everything, have gone up 15 percent this year. Probably about fifteen percent on average. I think fungicides will be up this year. So um, and everything, you know, diesel, everything's going higher. So uh, yeah, it, it, you got to be a bit careful. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's one end of it, and the other end is you, you need a crop to sell to make a margin. I suppose on the other side of it, how how did your your autumn go in terms of getting crops in, or how how are they all looking now? 
Yeah, we. I mean, we had a tremendous autumn. I have to say, it, it, drilling went really, really well. Um, we're no-till, as, as you know, uh, so we don't do any cultivations. After the summer we had, there was some deep cracks. We had enough rain, sort of September, we had about 40 mil of rain, um, and that just softened things nicely, and, and we got everything in really well, actually, in uh, in October, beginning of October there, beans and wheat. And um, it's come through the winter very well. There's one out of probably 300 hectares of wheat, there's probably 20 that's got a lot of black grass in it that I'm a bit disappointed with, but the rest of it all looks pretty good. Um, we've got fertiliser on quite early, um, beginning of February, we've got first dose of urea on, and um, things are looking okay. Actually, February is a lovely month, and I was so, yeah. you know, it's very early for us, it was cold, but I, I did some spring drilling, we drilled 80 hectares of oats in, in the end of February, and uh, and then it started raining in March and it just hasn't stopped. We've had rain virtually every day in March and uh, we've ended up 120 mil of rain, so which is a lot for us uh, at that time of year. Normally February is wet and March is dry, but so the, it was cold. Uh, the oats took three weeks to come out of the ground, but they're up in the way now. And, and actually the weather seems to have turned. Now we've hit the first of April, the weather seems to have turned again and it's it's looking a lot better this week. So um, yeah, generally I'd say that you know, some good crops of wheat about um, – I've been around in about the last month or so. We went up to Yorkshire and I've been over in Cambridge this morning and there's there's some good looking crops of wheat around. There's good potential out there, I think. So um if nothing else, hopefully yields will good, you know, be good if the weather plays ball now. I suppose despite all the um the giving out about rain in in, in, in March, it's good to get the rain, I suppose, because you're probably looking a bit dry there for a while, were you? It was actually uh, it was getting dry towards the end of February. People were starting to wonder, you know, because we hadn't really you know, water levels were well down after after last summer and people were starting to panic a little bit, particularly guys who irrigate. Um, but yeah, we've had a good, you know, February's been good and wet. Um, you know, we've had three or four dry days now and, and there's a bit more rain forecast Thursday, I think, and a bit catchy over the weekend. But you kind of expect a few showers this time of year. But um, we were we were getting sort of prolonged, heavy, heavy rain there. So, uh, and it did wet the fields up a lot. Um, it was very wet last Friday and Saturday here. So, uh, but no, things will dry out. And um, I always think of this. I, uh, have you finished all your spring planting, uh, Andy? Or no, you have a bit more to do? I, I've still got a bit more to do. I, I wanted to. Um, we drained two fields last year, and I want to mold drain those before we drill them. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm just. Uh, hopefully, we'll get mold draining again. We've got it'd be two days of mold draining, and then probably a day, a day's drilling then. And um, I've got a bit of drilling to do locally as well for a, a dairy farmer down the road. I've got some spring barley to put in. But like I say, soil temperatures are only just coming up uh, towards 10 now. It's been cold. We had frost last night. So uh, it's, um, I'm not too panicky. I, I drill oats up until the middle of April without too many worries. You know, they, they probably won't yield quite as much as the February drill stuff, but it won't be a disaster. Okay. Okay, just to to, to turn the, the the conversation a little bit different, I was just thinking about it, and lots of people have been asking me, I suppose, about the UK and 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 what you thought about how the changes are are, are coming to to pass across the UK since the UK um, left the EU. It it just appears, I suppose, from from the outside here, there seems to be lots of mixed messages maybe coming from the UK government. How do you, or maybe the farm owners, how do you, how are you viewing that policy or the general direction, or how hard is it to make decisions? <laughs> it's a dog's dinner, really, Michael. I think it's, <laughs> it's, it's what I'd say. Um, uh, you've got a government who the the only policy they have is an environmental policy. They haven't got a food policy, and that is very, very frustrating. They don't really want to talk about food production or being a food producer. They just want to talk about the environment. 
and everything they've got coming out currently is all about the environment. Um, sort of, I mean, it tops and changes on a month by month basis. But uh, Michael Gove was was um, DEFRA minister for a good period, and he he sort of tried to drive the environment and food together. And he came up with a plan for Elms and the current schemes that we're starting to see rolling out now, environmental wise. But what he did also instigate was a, a Henry Dimbleby to, do, to produce a food report, um, which he has done. And the, this current government and the current sort of DEFRA ministers are totally ignored and they're not really interested in it, it seems. And uh, that's gone by the wayside. So um, it is very difficult to plan. All we can plan is with, you know, our BPS will be down to 50%. Uh, of what it was historically uh, next year and it's gone by 2028 um, I mean there's reasonable money in the environmental schemes but they're, they're very slow to roll out they're well behind um, I think they're, they're virtually 12 months behind where they wanted to be rolling out these schemes and they, they you know they, they made a load of announcements early part of the year but most of those schemes won't be bolted in or ready to go until June or July Mm-hmm. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if they're pushed back a little bit as well. So there's an enormous sense of frustration, I think, from farmers over here. Um, lack of direction from the government. You know, we're very much take the view a few years ago that we we sort of try and lower our cost of production, be realistic about what we can produce. Um, we're a bit more, you know, when I was out in Australia many years ago, it was very cutthroat and to the point where guys would just make the decision on the day whether to plant a crop or not and we're fast sort of heading to that direction I think where you know we don't commit to a crop really until I start drilling because I haven't done any cultivations so you know it, it we're very much uh, go with the flow a little bit I suppose and, and try and where the opportunities are there but if, if you know I think there's no point in us growing half a crop you know we've got to grow what, what we grow has got to go in well and it's sure. got to produce well sort of thing. So if there's any sort of doubt that conditions aren't quite right or whatever, we just we just hang back a little bit. And we're looking to diversify. Well, we've had we've had a couple of good years, good harvest. We're, you know, we, we're changing all our grain drying equipment at the moment. We've invested in a bit of drainage. You know, that grain drying equipment, we're all on floor grain drying and, and storage. So we're moving to electric fans that are variable speed fans. So they, you know, um, variable load rather. So they'll, spin up and spin down depending on how much grain they're trying to get through mm. and um you know they've all got sensors in the grain so they'll they'll only switch on when they need to and when the temperature's right so they're you know that should save us money as well um and so we're trying to invest in sort of capital projects like that we've got a few off uh, we've got some industrial units that we set up a few years ago and a few uh, and can, um, I, can i bring you back to that maybe just a second can i go back just yeah, a little yeah. bit if you don't mind if you just go back a little bit to you mentioned that you're the basic payment is now fifty percent of what it might have been in the past. It, it certainly, certainly within Ireland or the EU, I think the larger payments are probably going to end up being back. Maybe not quite fifty, but thirty percent. I think by the time for tillage guys, um, within a few years. But I suppose each year that goes by, the the, the the linkage to environmental requirements in order to claim that here, certainly in Ireland, have increased. Is it something similar in the UK? Have those environmental conditions or conditionality of claiming that have they increased year on year not really i mean you still got we still got cross compliance which is obviously similar to what you've got uh, throughout the eu the, if you want to access the, the, any sort of uh, grant you know any sort of payments or subsidies if you like the only ones available are environmental and okay. um 
up till probably pre-Christmas, the government's attitude was it should be income for gone. So you basically just got paid what it was costing you to put put in, you know, these environmental, say, wild bird mixes or something. They weren't actually paying you a, an earning or a living or a profit on top of that. It was just income for gone. They've slightly tweaked the, and of course, you know, I don't think they saw that uh, everything, you know, skyrocketed the cost of seed, the cost of diesel, everything. So they have increased payments, but it's still not massively attractive. And I think the problems with the environmental schemes we've got is that, you know, for for a, a no-till sort of environmentally minded farmer like myself on the on the lowlands of England, it's fine. Uh, for guys in the uplands, sheep farmers in the uplands, for example, there's nothing in it for them. You know, I, I can pick an insecticide, you know, choose not to use insecticides and I can get £40 a hectare for doing that come June. I can sign into that agreement. That's no good to guys in the uplands who are grazing sheep, you know, up in Cumbria, up in the hills. So there's, and the, the, yeah, there's even guys I know, I talked to a, a chap recently who manages a big operation over in Norfolk and they've got um, low-lying sort of flooded wetlands that they, they graze in the summer and there's nothing, absolutely nothing that he can enter his, and it, these are, you know, really sites of, of significant interest environmentally, but there's nothing in those schemes that he can enter into it. So, you know, they haven't got it right, really. It, it's okay for the majority. But if you're a traditional plough, sort of combi drill type farmer, you're going to struggle like the, to access any payments, if you like. They, they really want to push everybody down the zero till route and no insecticides and less inputs, and, and you'll get payments for that. I mean, there won't be anything like BPS was, but you can recoup sort of probably half of what you were you were getting under BPS maybe. Right. That's, um, and is there, in terms of those environmental schemes, is it, a, is, is it you kind of go into a particular scheme and you have to do five or six different things or is it a menu type basis where you, where there's a list as long as your arm and you pick five or 10 of them or as many as you can do when you get paid X amount and all of them? Um, it, it's so complicated, Michael. They've, they've <laughs> done the very best to make it simple. And they took a very, what we've had previously have been quite simple schemes where you have to accrue a certain number of points, you know, for example, to, to gain that payment per hectare. And now you've got this, as an arable farmer, I've got a choice of three arable standards, um, high, medium and low. And then on bolted onto that as well, I've got three soil standards. This is in the um, Sustainable Farming Incentive, the SFI, which is the base level environmental scheme. Um, and then I can bolt in three arable soil standards, high, medium, or low, and they get progressively, um, you know, very little tillage. They talk, you know, uh, to full no-till. They've just various different standards for each one of the payments go up accordingly. I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it's like 30, 45, and 65 pounds a head or per hectare rather for each level. It's it's something in that region, and then on top of that, they've they've rolled out these other things that you can bolt on coming from uh, June onwards, like no insecticides, reduced fertilizer usage, um, and again, there's different payments for those. I don't think those payment rates. The only one I've heard is forty pounds a hectare for being insecticide free. So there's there's I think there's six of those standards coming as well. I mean, and then based it pulled into those. There's also hedgerow standards which they pay a pittance. They're not really worth considering. I don't think they pay hardly anything. Um, and, and and the whole crux of it is the protection of soil and water and air quality. That's what they're aiming for. So they're the base level schemes. And then you go into countryside stewardship, which is a bit of a higher level scheme. Again, um, again 
you can put in so many hectares and then you pick out what options you want out of that as well. So for instance, my countryside stewardship scheme has um, a grass and legume uh, two-year lay, which unfortunately, uh, which again, I disagree with, but I can't do anything about it, is you're not allowed to cut that for a silage or anything, which I think is a great management tool and a, and a great shame you can't. Sure. You can only top it. Um, so it's basically like a fertility building lay for two years. Um, I've got wild bird mixes in mine as well. So we plant food for wild birds. We feed wild birds as well, seeds over winter. Um, I've also got grass margins against watercourses, which again, for me, is a bit of a no-brainer. So a six-meter margin against all our watercourses. Um, and then we've got, we have got some hedgerows in there. So we only like cut those hedgerows that are in the scheme once every three years. And there's a few others we've got as well around various parts, um, wildflower mixes as well. So the grass and wildflower mixes around the edges of our solar parks and bits that we can't really farm because of small awkward areas. We've put those in as well. So it, for us, it's, it works quite well. And then you've got capital grants bolted on on top of all of that lot as well. So they can be standalone or as part of the agreement. We've planted uh, 500 trees and three kilometers of hedge road this winter on, on part of our capital works. And then we're hoping we've put in a rainwater harvesting system for spray water. So that's, uh, we've got, uh, I think it's 1200, 120,000 liters of rainwater storage and harvesting now, which that works really, really well. I'm really pleased with that. Um, and then there's grants towards concrete and we've got broken areas of yard as well. And again, this is for water protection groundwater protection they, they want us to reconcrete the parts of the yard but again the grant co- doesn't really cover probably only covers 30 percent of the cost i mean it's better than nothing and we probably will do it at some point but um not just at the moment and then the you know bigger scheme overall is is um landscape recovery scheme which is where they're looking to for groups of farmers or massive estates sort of ten thousand acres at a time to pull together to for really you know significant um areas or interest uh, you know uh, i'm trying to think of it I, I don't know of one scheme that's been set up yet but i think the sort of coastal areas where there's a particular habitat they want to to protect um or say peat uplands or something like that where they want to really protect that area they'll try and get either one big estate or several farmers to pull together and, and create you know a scheme you, yeah. you have to do it in conjunction with them to to create a scheme like that but there won't be many of those agreements but you know what uh, andy it sounds very similar to the to, to the eu scheme an awful lot of that oh, right. it doesn't sound massively different we have a we have an array of complexity i suppose is the best way to put it in terms of the various different things that can be actions that can be done that probably don't pay a huge amount and um actions that are um probably slightly better than others but i suppose the thing that strikes me as you're talking about it one is that you sound quite knowledgeable about it all um and I suppose I was wondering, do you do, do do you try and complete all of those, inform yourself of all of those, or do you have help uh, coming in onto the farm to try and navigate all of those options for what's best for you? Um, I mean, one of the things they've done is you can get a day's free advice from uh, an advisor on this. And um, I mean, one day just isn't enough. If, if you've got a guy coming on farm who's never visited before, um but they'll pay i think it's they'll pay that advisor there's only a certain number of advisors that are registered to do it um but yeah i try and keep briefed myself but even now i mean i i've had to employ a guy i'm waiting for his bill i'm sure it'll be a hefty one he's helped me go through with my countryside stewardship scheme this year because that's what he does and it's so specialized and i think 
this is what they were trying to get away from it and make it simple enough that farmers can apply. And actually the application process for SFI is very, very easy online. I could do it in about half an hour probably for the farm. But it's when you want to start really milking into the the capital grants and the you know being a bit savvy about what you you can and can't do. And you know, I'm probably a bit conservative, whereas the guy uh, Paul who's helped me do my application, he's just gone all out and claimed for absolutely everything. And he's probably gained us more money from doing that and opened my eyes to being able to do more um, and layering. You know, I've always been afraid about layering stuff in because you get done for double funding but he's like well that's their problem they've got to pull it out if, if they if they think you've double funded they've got to realize that you have and it's them you know he, he's very good he's he's brutal with um you know i'm glad he's fighting my corner actually and i think it's money well spent actually because he he probably earns his fee very easily from what from the extra income that we get by using him to to apply so okay so that's becoming a valuable source of income then in terms of your overall farm income is it I, what I would say is it's enabling us to, to to do capital works like the rainwater harvesting and stuff I wouldn't have done without the capital grant towards it. Um, the hedge planting and stuff I probably wouldn't have done without the, the grant. So it's, I suppose the capital works is very useful because that's enabling me to do stuff, which I think is very valuable around the farm, but probably stuff I wouldn't be able to justify doing, you know, spending 30 grand planting hedgerows. I probably can justify it. But actually, if I get a grant that covers half of it that makes it a bit more palatable then the rainwater harvesting it, it the grant covered all of it so it's okay. a no-brainer really yeah, yeah absolutely yeah and and when you look at the because you've you, you've a big block of land there and there's very sort of different pits and pieces you're doing you mentioned before you were doing the there's a solar park there and there's i think you might have mentioned a uh, house rental and i think you were you were about to say you might have industrial units and various different bits and pieces in terms of the overall large unit in in terms of all the bits and pieces that are to be managed there where does farming kind of sit in all of that now uh, as in i suppose in my head back in the past maybe 20 years ago and i'm just taking that as a number that might have been number one is it still close to number one or is it now kind of going way down in, on the priorities if you like in terms of the overall income it's still number one i mean it's still our biggest income but my brief here from from the the owners has always been, you know, we need to diversify the income so we're not so reliant on and at the mercy of farm policy or, you know, the weather or, you know, these random things like, you know, Russia invading the Ukraine. So, so that's why we have, you know, the solar parts. We have some industrial units that we rent out. We're trying to convert more for in, more industrial lets as well, some more, another um, shed that we've got down another yard um and there's real demand for it it's a bit of a again you know the, these things pay back in probably six or seven years and um, we're looking at, at believe it or not dog walking fields are, are very popular over here now and, and again good money fence off um you know a couple of acres with grass and a few trees and, and make, you know make it a bit nice but doesn't you know so people got a naughty dog they can they can walk walk the dog without worrying that it's going to disappear over the horizon they won't be able to find it so um we're looking at doing that as well and it's just about having some smaller extras if you like that don't impact too much on the farm the farm's still was still important to us and uh um you know we're still farmers but we we, we that almost we need those to help us to you know all sort of molds together we can't do one without the other if you like um a lot of the time so farming's still still our number one income but um i could see t- we could get to a point where solar and um 
industrial lens could eclipse it, you know, or certainly, you know, match it. So, yeah, God, it's, it's changing times for sure when you have that. But I suppose it's, it's having that population around, yeah, probably lends uh, itself to being able to leverage some of the potential income streams that having people with money around you can do, I suppose. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, we're not uh, at this point in time sort of looking to do any sort of public facing, you know, selling other than maybe that, you know, if we if we do go down the road doing the, this dog walking field. Um, I mean, we've already got a bit of a new woodland that we planted that's fenced and it, it seems obvious to, you know, to rent that out to, for, for something like that. Um, you know, we, we are fairly urban where we are. We've got plenty of um, people on our doorstep. So, I mean, I, I could see a point in the future where we might do something, but at the moment, uh, that's not it's not quite on the radar, but the demand for small industrial units for um small businesses uh is huge but there's just there's more demand than there is supply in the market at the moment but planning is the massive massive issue and um you know i don't know if anybody's watched clarkson's farm but the issues he has with planning it's not just uh, exclusive to oxfordshire it's uh bedfordshire it's worse if you like we've we've just really banging our heads against the wall trying to get stuff through planning at the moment or even just get an answer a yes or a no answer would be great but we're not even getting that. We're not getting any help. There's just no planners and there's no interest in trying to push these things forward. That's really holding not just me, but I know a lot of guys back. Um, uh, I was talking to a farmer recently. His shed got burnt down. It was arson, burnt the straw shed down. It was an old barn or part of it. It was an old stone barn. He wants to just rebuild it the same as it was. And he can't. The, he has to get uh, permission to alter it slightly to rebuild it. And they won't give him permission at the moment. Right. <laughs> it's crazy. Right. Absolutely crazy. Uh, again it uh, has similarities to Ireland over here as well because we know loads of things like that happening too but can yeah. I ask you just in terms of when you stand back and, you, and, and you're looking at it and obviously you still have a, a fairly long career in in, in in arable farming in the UK where do you think is it'll go within 10 years time obviously to be less payments certainly from a direct payment point of view uh, and more payments from an environmental point of view where do you all see it kind of shaking out I mean, it's a very good question. I wouldn't, I don't know is the honest answer, Michael, at the moment. I think you can only sort of farm with what's in front of you. And it's very difficult, really, really difficult to plan at the moment because, you know, crop prices are so volatile, as volatile as I've ever seen them in my career. Um, and the input prices as well. And I think we've just got to be, you know, I think it's farmers who are perhaps a little bit more switched on. Uh, I feel sorry for the smaller family farms, perhaps who are paying big rents and stuff. They're going to really, one time's quite hard going forward, I think. Um, guys like ourselves, we're fairly well situated. We have got other incomes, so that helps. Um, but I think what the government are probably hoping or seeing is that with the um, net zero legislation coming down the line as well, there's going to be more private money coming in. We've got a thing called uh, biodiversity net gain now, where big building um, applications have to offset environmentally. And they're looking at farmers to do that. So you can get money for putting a pond and, you know, uh, a habitat in, in a couple of hectares of the farm. Uh, and that's private money that comes in. You can't, you, you can't claim a government grant scheme to do that, but that's just kicked in. That's just the biodiversity net gain rules that just come in. And I think as well with the net zero, this guy's looking carbon uh, sales. I don't know if that's kicked off in Ireland, but um there is a you know a raft of cowboys on the horizon trying to buy carbon <laughs> credits or get you to generate carbon credits and sell them. You've got to be very very careful. 
You're not a believer uh, yet, then. I, I well, I've, I've I've done a, a you know a fair bit of homework on it, and um, I've you know, I have we have signed up with a scheme actually, um, one that I'm you know fairly confident. I've I've spoken to a lot of people about it, and uh, one guy in, in particular who's done a lot of research across worldwide on this um, has assured me it's the most robust scheme he's come across. So that was I took that as a pretty good indicator so we we have signed up with the scheme and we've done um, a lot of soil testing and auditing uh we're in the first year of audit so it'll be our first after harvest we'll go through our first audit process and then generate credits probably be this time next year how's that significant are they do you think andy you know for us could be a six-figure income Really, yeah, you know, six-figure right. income. So, yeah, you're talking quite significant amounts of money, um, and that's because, why because because of the no-till system that you're in, and the there are very different bits and pieces yeah. you're doing, is it? Yeah, 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 ma- uh, yeah, mainly because of that. And I think as well with the new hedgerows we're planting as well, they'll start to hedgerows are a great carbon sink as well. So they'll start to pull in. We're we're planting um, a field of agroforestry next winter, which we're well on with planning. And we'll start laying that out um, probably in May. We'll start prepping the ground for that. So. Um, Things like that will will only boost it more. I mean, I, where, you know, how that market's going to play out, I don't know. The food companies are going to have to inset their carbon footprint up the supply chain. Well, that will come all the way back up to uh, the farmer to try and help with that. Um, so, I mean, I'm just wary. We don't want to be selling it too cheap. But I think if we start generating the credits and they're sat there, you know, then we can start cashing them in. Um but yeah, that's an exciting, it's an interesting market. And I, I don't know quite how that's going to play out, but I think the government would very much like to see more private money coming in that way. Um, I'm just very wary of it. It's, it's uh, you know, there's there's a lot of potential, but equally there's a lot of potential for a slip up there as well. Well, certainly it, it sounds like certainly in all the conversations we've had last year and this year as well, also that you're, you've, you've, you've certainly done your level best to try and set the farmer, the farm up for that kind of a, I suppose maybe on one side a, a low cost uh, establishment kind of system, but on the other side to capture some of the benefits. I suppose maybe from from carbon if they are going to be there um, in in the in the future. So, from that point of view, I think well done. <laughs> Probably more luck than judgment, though, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> unlikely, unlikely. You're very well informed in fairness, isn't? Andy, thanks very much for 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 chatting to us again. I think it was really interesting. A lot of a lot of farmers and and people in the industry here in Ireland are going to listen to this with. Huge interest and um, there's a lot of similarities, um, but perhaps there's more written down um, policy, I suppose, maybe that we're seeing coming out of the EU. But nonetheless, it's it's all very much going the one direction. It's very environmental. It's kind of where it's, where it's all going to land, I think. Yeah, yeah, and no, I agree. I think I think there is a big there's a big drive across the EU. You look what's happening in the Netherlands and stuff as well. You know, there is a big drive towards environmental focus all across Europe and uh yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, how it pans out, you know, but I think it just worries me that we, you know, we need a food policy to run alongside it. We definitely do. Yes, Nanny, again, thanks very much. We've taken up enough of your time. I'm delighted you could join us again. I know you're, you're, you're very busy and probably getting back into lots of different agronomy work out there as well. So thanks again for, for, for joining the podcast. That's a pleasure, Michael. Good to talk to you. So that's it for this week. My thanks to Andy for joining me on the show. If you want to find out more about Andy's farm, search through previous episode on whichever podcast app you use. Keep an eye out for local Chagas crop walks coming up in April and early May throughout the country. There are two walks planned in Carlow on April the 13th and in Athai on April the 18th. 
These walks will go through crop agronomy needs for the crops in 2023. For more details, go to chagas.ie forward slash events. Finally, don't forget if you enjoyed the podcast, then recommend it to a friend or colleague. And as always, rate, review and follow on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you never miss an episode. And for more information, go to chagas.ie. I'm Michael Hennessy. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with more tillage news and advice.